Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. Going into a great ad, like you could break it down from like a video standpoint or, you know, an image standpoint, both were, both are pretty different of how we look at those, but like the best metrics, like I, we usually try to aim for a cost per link click under a dollar and then click through rate over 1% to one and a half percent. Now, if you want to go into like what makes a good ad and how you divide up like the creative. It's usually going to be a really good hook if it's a video, which is that thumb stop, three second video views divided by impressions. And if it's going to be an image, uh, it's going to be something compelling. So either telling them what they're going to get from this product, immediately showing them what they're going to get, you know, before and afters, things like that work really well, or what that end finished product is, what they're, they're getting from it. What's up, everybody? We're back with another episode. This one's going to be a good one. We're going to talk about some growth marketing with someone who's scaled and grown a bunch of companies that you may have heard of. Well, what's up, Tori? Not much, man. How you doing today? Great, great. I wanted to go into your background quickly. How did you get into scaling and growing companies? A uh, bit of a weird one. So uh, I was actually a police officer from the time I was 24 until uh, almost 28 years old. And then after a few years, I was like, hey, this kind of is it for me. Didn't want to do it forever and stuff like that. So I ended up moving to Denver, Colorado and kind of chasing the entrepreneurial dream. And that's when I founded uh, Mansion with my best friend Faraz, uh, which is a men's premium jewelry company. We need someone to run Facebook ads. You know, me just, you know, quitting my job. We didn't have uh, any coin coming in to be able to pay someone to do that. So someone had to learn it. And uh, yeah, jumped onto YouTube and started researching some things there. And, uh, you know, started getting into into Facebook ads. So from that point on, I, I started, you know, doing our own ads, jumping into other people's companies and things like that. So, you know, started learning the, the back end and found out that I kind of have a good talent for this. That's such a cool story of transition to like from police officer to growing companies. That's like a, that's like a story you don't hear a lot. Yeah. A little bit out there, a little different. I haven't heard anyone else with that story, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a, a good transition fun. And uh, you know, it had that competitive spirit uh, come over to, to Facebook ads. Yeah. I was going to ask you, what is, um what is like your biggest learning that you took from being a police officer into growth marketing? I think it's just the discipline. I think the discipline probably, I mean, you have to, there's a big part of like being a police officer that, you know, there's like, I wasn't a traffic cop or anything like that. I worked in a pretty bad neighborhood in South Phoenix. So it was a little different, but learning all the laws and things like that, making sure you know what you can and can't do. Like there's a discipline behind that to, to realize that you're not overstepping boundaries and you stay within those. And it's kind of the same thing with everything you do. You have to know, you know, how far you can push and how far you can pull to do things correctly and like buy the book. I always like make the parallel of like sports into marketing because it's all that di discipline and consistency and like knowing the roles and going through like those tough times, like yours is probably like boot camp. I was like two a days, but like all those tough times with people like that like mentally prepare you for like the real world. So 
Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I did. I played college football as well, so I, I relate to that as well. So I get it to a day. Oh, so you you win the d- doubles? Jeez, <laughs> not please. <laughs> yeah, I mean a little bit, but yeah, I I wasn't uh, a stud or anything in college football. I was just that guy riding bench. Uh, but yeah, still had to go to practice and do everything. I want to go into growth marketing with you. So you've grown and scaled a couple of cool companies. When you're going into a company and looking at how you're going to grow it, what are your, what are the things you start looking at to set up to start scaling that company? Yeah, so I think it kind of depends on where that company comes in. We have we've taken on some companies over at Dream Labs in like the incubator stage, which is obviously like so low and so in the beginning that we, you know, it's just kind of like can we prove out proof of concept, but then. A lot of the companies who come in are already doing eight figures a year and they're trying to get to nine figures and they so they come to us over at Dream Labs. Those people, we kind of look at like a golden formula, which is kind of like cost per session times AOV times conversion rate. And, you know, that's kind of, you're going to have somewhere in that formula break. Whether AOV is not high enough for someone to scale or cost per session is not low enough or conversion rate's not good enough, we're trying to find where in that formula can we drastically improve these people to make sure that we can get them from, you know, 20, 30 million dollars a year to that 100 million dollar mark. So in that formula, let's say cost per session, getting to cost per session to the right place, what are some things you do to change that, that metric? Yeah. So cost per session is kind of like an overall blended look uh, of traffic to the site. So obviously like my main thing is meta. That's what I'm very good at. That's that's how we scale most of our clients. But we understand that there's a lot of click around for meta and things like that. So we want to look at an overall blended cost per session, more holistic view. The simple things are going onto the meta platform if that's their main traffic driver and making sure we increase that click-through rate or drop that cost per link click. We know that the more people we can get to that site for cheaper cost, the better chances that our success are, even if it doesn't happen that same day. So sometimes ROAS doesn't change immediately, but we know that you know if we're driving three times the amount of traffic, holistically, longer down the line, email, organic, everything else, all those other channels should end up converting that traffic for us uh, at a higher level. Yeah, I actually haven't heard of many people break it down in cost per sessions. Like you hear... A lot of people are speaking on, say, Twitter and stuff, and they're looking at a couple like basic metrics, maybe ROAS or CAC or something like that, which I think you get is it's also those metrics are converting at the point where a lot of your metrics is they're going to be people that you need to educate before they're going to even want to buy your exact your product so getting more and more eyeballs on your product is a good thing because eventually if you they'll convert and you're still going to look at cac and all that stuff but if that if that set of those sessions are at a cheap enough rate you're doing a good great job yeah we're trying to fill that funnel with as many of the right people from the right audience uh, for as cheap as possible and then we know that later on, these should end up converting. As long as everything else is in line, we have to make sure, like we said, the rest of that is in check with Google, email, whether you have an app and all those kind of things as well. So what is your formula for a great ad? What, what goes into a great advertising on Facebook? Going into a great ad, like you could break it down from like a video standpoint or, you know, an image standpoint, both were 
both are pretty different of how we look at those. But like the best metrics, like I, we usually try to aim for a cost per link click under a dollar. That's like the metric. And then click through rate over 1% to 1.5%. That's like our bare. So those are like the two metrics that we look at on platform. Now, if you want to go into like what makes a good ad and how you divide up like the creative, it's usually going to be a really good hook if it's a video, which is that thumb stop, three second video views divided by impressions. And if it's going to be an image, uh, it's going to be something compelling. So either telling them what they're going to get from this product, immediately showing them what they're going to get, you know, before and afters, things like that work really well. Or what that end finished product is, what they're, they're getting from it. So you've got the great hook, you've got the great ad. What other things you look at besides, so in the creative, is this sort of things you, you do in production to make sure, okay, this is a good hook, but it, does it have to be a human or is the product shown or what are some elements of that ad that make it great? Yeah, so that's something we'll test right away. So let's say we have something that's a, a pretty high converting ad, but there's just, you know, we want to improve on it. There's not enough traffic coming through it for us. So we might look at that thumb stop in the beginning, those first three seconds of the video. Let's say it shows a product at this point with a really good hook, uh, you know, the fastest way to becoming fit or whatever it is. Let's say that's it. We're going to change out that video behind that to 10 different things. We're going to test that and see, is it the hook and the text overlay that's really pulling people in? Or is it the display of whatever that first uh, video was, with the first three seconds? Once we end up analyzing that and saying, hey, it's A or it's B, then we're going to test the opposite. We're going to go the other way. And then we continue to go through that and segment the entire video out from like three seconds to 10 seconds, 10 seconds to 15 seconds, and continue to break that out. We continue testing until we have the best ad we, we can make. I love that it's so methodical, like, okay, let's test the first three seconds and test once we what the barrier of the three seconds, let's go to 10 seconds of the ad, then 15, and then we have an ad that is high converting. I think that's the showing of using science and art together to make sure that you're coming up with the best, the best ad that that's the highest converting for it. For a customer in your point, or when if you're running your own brand, I bet you did the same exact thing to be able to prove that out. So I love that approach of just rapidly and testing. And that's the greatest thing about Facebook is back in the day, you couldn't test that rapidly. Hooks, creative, it was just like split testing direct mail and seeing if which one came back the best. Um, now it's like you could test micro things at a small budget to make sure your ad is perfected exactly yeah we're just trying to make sure we we iterate as fast as possible with a reasonable amount of like spend and, and move forward so we can continue to improve and when you're looking at to say targeting an audience are you using more broad targeting or are you are you specific are you going deeper in targeting when you have a broader yeah, this is where it starts to get a little uh, a little grainy for people. So I almost solely do broad targeting, but I do have like moments where I'm I'm using audiences and going very granular. So in the beginning, like we said, if you're a brand new product, there's sometimes the best thing to do is give Facebook a little like lead and say, hey, we're looking at men's apparel or women's apparel, 
the keys or whatever it is and give them a little bit before your pixel has any spend on it. It needs some data to kind of figure out what's going on here. So sometimes we'll do that in the beginning, but also at the very high level. So we have a couple uh, clients of ours who are spending close to $10 million a month, you know, anything above that range. You have to end up, you know, segmenting that out. And so like going towards specific people looking for specific things. So like you'll have different angles for products. So let's say, you know, protein powder, you know, one's staying lean, one's getting big, one is, you know, healthier lifestyle, you know, whatever those things are. All three of those people might convert to different ads. We want to make sure that we target those separately with different ads. So, I mean, what I'm getting from you, it makes sense. One, if you're like at the beginning phase to get the pixel to basically start learning a little bit. And then the other side of it is if your if your budget is huge, then you start you can go more micro. But there's like that middle stage where like broad targeting is like actually a better option because you just still try to you're learning, you're exactly. deciding. Yeah, you're basically still learning to see what is product market fit for this product, who is the exact type of people that want to buy this product. Yeah. When you're in that middle phase, you want to focus on like your creative testing. That's that's the main focus. Once you're spending a few million dollars a month or so, people already kind of know like, hey, these are the types of creative these audiences are going to. How can we tailor that to those specific audiences to make them convert higher and drop our CPA? That's where they start going at the big level to really start getting to that eight to nine figure mark. What are some things that you do I think the, the first part you said was the the session. So let's say, what is the AOV you recommend to start spending a lot of money? Because I think, I mean, some products, if it's low AOV, you just need a bunch of bulk to be able to sell it. If it's high AOV, you have more breathing room. But how do you adjust that metric to make sure they're selling the product in the right way, they're bundling in the right way, they have like a shipping bar i think aov can work basically at any any level from you know thirty dollars up to you know thousand dollars we have you know clients up at aov a thousand i have a client as low as 35 and we make both of them work i think it just depends on you know you have to convert high enough those other metrics have to pick that up so that's kind of what we were talking about their cost per session aov conversion rate if you have a low aov that conversion rate and cost per session have to pick up the slack that that AOV have and vice versa. If you have a very high AOV, you can slack a little more on your conversion rate. It can be a 0.5 because you're a thousand dollar AOV. So you can make up for that range. So something we do a lot, uh, a lot of people don't look at AOV by ads. Uh, we actually do. We look at AOV by, you know, if we're showing catalog ads, carousel ads or whatever it may be, we show usually, if we show more products, that AOV is higher. If we show a singular product going to a PDP, then it's usually higher converting. But the AOV is usually whatever that product price is. Like they're not going to go shop around your website. So there's a trade off there. And so it kind of depends if you're trying to pick up the AOV to make a client more successful uh, because everything else is already there. We might try to display more things. We might even drive to a landing page where, like you were saying, Daniel, there's a specific bundle or package that these people can get, you know, buy two, get one free or whatever it may be to try to drive that AOV up so we can lift the entire ship and continue to scale. Okay. So you've done like the perfect ad creative. You got the perfect ad. Obviously like the next step is like, 
having a great landing page. So what what do what do you recommend that people do on on site to make sure that the ad they're driving to the page that they're driving to is high converting? Yeah. So singular products, uh, or maybe you just have a few products. I recommend testing landing pages all day. Uh, listicles, you know, the Trojan horse, all those kind of things. Everybody on Twitter talks about all the time. I think everybody's pretty right on with landing pages there. But if you have a, a large catalog, like for example, us over at Mansion, we have men's premium jewelry. We have a large catalog. There's no reason for us to narrow that down to like three or four products on a landing page. It's probably not going to do us very much justice if they can't find the colorways or materials or whatever they're looking for. So those large catalogs, we just continue to tell people to optimize their website. Continue testing new ad copy. And most of the time, it boils down to the creative. So even on the website, it boils down to, you know, how good is your content? People are used to going into the store. You know, you're going into Nordstrom Rack or H&M or whatever it may be. And you're, you're getting the shopping experience. And the way we get that shopping experience online is through the content that's provided back to us. What is, what's this shirt look like on someone who you know, has the same body type as me, or what does this hat look like, et cetera, et cetera. Those things have to be shown on the website for me to feel like, hey, when I order this and it arrives in three to four days, it's going to be exactly what I'm looking for. We're trying to replace that experience. And the only way to do that is through content. I want to go a little deeper into the content play, but I think knowing that humans, especially now more than ever, because I think there was like a two-year wave where people couldn't go try on things during COVID. So it was a little easier and they will always buy. Now we're going back to the wave of even like my wife, she's in e-commerce. She she has to go to the store to like try on 90% of things before she will buy them online because she doesn't know how we'll look on her. But I think there are ways that you said that could make her buy things right now if she knew how it fit on her or how it looked on someone that was the same body type or the same. It's like so many different variations that like yeah, people look at when they're buying products. So I think how do you consider what type of content to put on there? Like what specifications to put on there to make sure do you go by, hey, the average buyer would buy this. So I'm going to put that piece of content that shows the average person wearing that, or do you have a range of different type of people and um, models and you know where I'm going with this, but I just think there's a different, how do you think about that? I think you look at your ads to be frank, like you go back to your ads and say, what's, what's the model look like that was in the ads or what's the content we were pushing in the ads Let's say it's a non-model product. Let's go back to protein powder or something in the supplement industry. Same exact thing. They're not chasing who is the model, but how does it make me feel? And how do you get that content to show how does how does that person feel? That feeling that they're missing, whether it's you know protein powder, like we said earlier, and they're looking to be happier or stronger or more fit or whatever it is, but they're going to need to see a like model probably or someone that they're inspiring to look like or... If it's a supplement, like in the sleep industry, we have some of those and it's like, okay, are we showing them falling asleep faster? Or are we showing them refreshed in the morning and like, you know, having a good day? Those are two different types of content we have to test and say which one is displaying better to our people and users and which one's converting higher. So all of that stuff has to get taken into account. And even at the level, like we said, of eight, nine figures a year, 
it still just boils down to testing. It is just a constant game of testing. And I feel like sometimes we think we really know what's going to work. And then it's just like out of left field, something else comes uh, and you're like, wow, I can't believe this beat that out. But, uh, you know, if that's what the data shows, we continue to move in that direction. What is something that you were a hundred percent certain was going to work, work, but turned out the opposite was true. Do you have like a story of that? So something just dumb and simple, and this will kind of put that out there. So for Mansion, Manchuri, we sell for, solid 14 karat gold products as well. So they're up to like five, $6,000 sometimes. So we were messing with like, okay, do we show a model first or do we show the product first? You know, and we we're like, oh, the model so they can see how it fits, things like that. So the very first one, I always thought the model was going to be a better image. So you could see how the jewelry would fit on someone. That was proven wrong. They just wanted to see the product themselves and visualize it, which is like, okay, that's one thing. That beat out. The next was backgrounds of the actual product. So white, gray, cream, like these types of things. And like by a significant margin, a cream background beats out a white background for jewelry products. And if you go to most jewelry, like advertisers online, like the big guys, K jewelers and people like that, you'll see they started running these cream backgrounds and things. It's very weird. I can't tell you the psychology behind it. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, especially like gold on cream. It's like a very similar color, but it, it converts way higher than like a white background or a black where it pops. It's like the little psychology things that you don't know that are going to work that end up working. Like I heard someone like, they said like, oh, I'm just going to put a dog on my landing page and see if that's going to like convert higher. And like the dog, like just like random things that you put yeah. on your landing page. And then the dog, like just because there's a dog on the landing page, it converts way higher than like non-dog. It's just like little things that you, you never expect convert higher. That's why going back to your point that you made probably like 10 times, which is just continually test, 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 because you, you actually never know what's going to convert. Yeah, it's, rid it's ridiculous sometimes the things that work. It's, it's crazy. What is a marketing hill you would die on? One day click over seven day, probably something like stupid attribution stuff. That's probably one or, or that cost per session matters. Uh, a lot of people you'll see say like cost per session doesn't matter. You know, that it's a vanity metric. And that, you know, if your clicks are more expensive and you're driving higher quality traffic that, you know, you're going to end up converting better. But it, to me, it's like that's uh, you're mostly bringing back people who are middle and bottom of funnel, which is why that click is more expensive. And you're going to end up eventually burning that funnel. So if you don't keep that that cost per session low enough or those cost per clicks low enough, uh, especially on platform, you don't have enough top of funnel traffic coming in and you end up just burning the funnel outlet. I would die on that one pretty, pretty hard. So many marketers, they're just in the business of capturing demand. They're just great at capturing people who have that pain right now or is looking for, let's say, jewelry right now or is like looking. But they, what you're saying also is like, there are people out there that might not be looking for jewelry right now that you need to educate that if you're just going to focus on that that expensive clip with high quality um, traffic, it's going to be people who are in the market right now. You have to get as many people to see your product as possible to be able to, because those people, 
it's audience value too. There's people who are going to eventually buy from you. So I love that train of thought. I mean, that's the whole goal of meta too. Like meta versus Google. Google is warm traffic. Like that's why it's more expensive and that's why it converts higher. But the whole goal of meta and paid media, like TikTok, wherever you're looking, YouTube views, all that kind of stuff is about cold traffic. It's about showing to people who necessarily might not be looking for you at this time, but you're going to get in front of them so that they do see you later on when they are looking for you. So you're just trying to move people down that funnel as, as we go. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because I, I come from a B2B space, but I've seen this a thousand times where people turn off meta because like they see like branded search or keywords like performing very well. But, but once they turn off meta, then you see a decline in branded search and, and yeah, searching real products. So it's like you said, it's just basically like even like that outbound versus inbound stuff. Like you need some people to go out. It's basically outbound at scale where you're trying to educate, 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 put content in front of them. And eventually you'll start moving people down the funnel. But I think people are so scared of that piece because of the spending and they just like, okay, let me just capture people in the market. But like you said, I think that's the difference with people who want to just like scale slowly versus, I mean, you're ahead of growth, like grow. Like, cause I think yeah. you're, the only way to scale is reach people that haven't, are not in the market to buy right now. You have to invest in yourself. I mean, personally, business, like everything, like if you want to grow in any facet of life, you have to invest in yourself. You have to put time or money into it to continue to grow. And for, for most brands, that's, money. Like you said, a really good way to look at it from B2B standpoint is outbound versus inbound. There needs, like you have to always put outbound out there at probably a high velocity and you just need to make sure that there's always this, you know, this ratio of what you keep it at. Like, hey, 80% outbound, 20% inbound, like whatever that is, it's the same thing for Meta or any other platform. One thing I wanted to go into, because I want to get your thoughts on is you said at the beginning that you learned on YouTube and stuff like that. What are some, if someone was starting today, what are some resources that people can look at to become better at, say, Facebook or growth marketing? Or what are some things that you learned that got you the most success? Yeah, I think YouTube's a good place to start for like the, the very small, like, you know, you're just getting started just to learn how to like use the platform itself, how to like even set things up and things like that. And then once you kind of get to that, and there's a lot of resources on YouTube, you can just Google whatever you're looking for. But once you kind of start getting up there, I think there's so many podcasts out there, obviously, like, you know, that we're doing now that are so educational and can help people so much. And then the next thing is, you know, Twitter. I know a lot of people laugh at DTC Twitter, and there's always a lot of stuff going on there. People arguing and everybody's got a different opinion. But, you know, once you start to kind of zone in and like, like the people you like and kind of follow those people reach out to them, ask them for help. Uh, we, you know, I asked uh, Stephen Borelli very early on, the uh, founder of Cuts Clothing, when we started Mansion, like long before we even probably sold $100,000 for some advice and he was willing to take some time and give some advice to us and things like that. And we continue to do that now. We continue to reach out to people who we look up to and you know, try to talk to them through Instagram or Twitter and get jump on calls and just say, hey, can I pick your brain for 15 minutes and learn from other people? I feel like a lot of people are willing to you know, hear you out, answer your questions. It's, uh, it's always been a good community for the most part. I'm sure there's a 
you assholes, excuse my language, but uh, I'm sure there are. I'm not one of them. Uh, at least I don't think so. So, I mean, I think that's the most beneficial thing you can do is, is reach out and just talk to people. Uh, you can always get those questions answered and things like that uh, much faster and much easier that, that way. I love that. I think like when you're starting, like lar- there are so many resources out there, the internet, there's so many people who put out great information. But I think the other thing is learning to build that network of people. Like if I have this problem with creative, I know who like the five best creative people to ask, like how, what is creative working? Or if something's happening with targeting, I can go to this person because I know they're great at targeting. Or if I know this person is great at product and increasing AOV or whatever, you just need to have your people that can are great at certain things that you could just be like, Hey, I mean, obviously there's two sides of the coin. Like you're giving information back and it's, it's a a relationship building. But I think I found that later in your career, it's like building that network of people that for certain things you can go to and ask questions. And there, most people, like you said, there's some are willing to help. I think so too. I think, you know, I, and I think that's one thing it's really hard when you're not good at something or don't understand is being, uh, being a little scared to ask those questions to people. Just like, you know, we always got told in school, there's no stupid questions. I think it it still applies today. Even the the top guys still, still ask questions. And I think that's what makes the top guys, the top learners are usually the people who are at the top of the game. Yeah. I mean, even like the operators podcast, I know, you know, like that, that started as like a, a group chat of just like great operators asking each other questions. Um, yep. so it's like all these little things of this happens all the time in DMS and meetups and networking. It's just, you have to learn from the best to be the best. And that's how it goes. hundred percent. Well, I want to give you the like one or two minutes to plug yourself where people could find you, where people could find things you're doing. This is your time. Oh, appreciate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Twitter is an easy one. Uh, it's just Tory Rowe, two R I I double I's. I know it's a weird one. And then Rowe, R O W E. There on Instagram. I'm on there a lot. But if you want to hit us uh, on dreamlabsagency.com, that's our, it's the agency I run with uh, Blake Pinkskirt. He's a creative stud. He's uh, was the former uh, CMO over at Movement, helped scale Movement to a hundred million and exit there. So, He's a stud. And then, yeah, you can always check out our brand mansion. Um, it's premium jewelry. So I appreciate it. Yeah. If you're a DTC brand and want to scale, especially with Facebook, I mean, he has a resume of some cra- crazy brands that he's worked on and scaled. So um, go check him out. Appreciate it, Daniel. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the pod. And I really appreciate it. Yep. Take care, man. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.